August 8, 1975, Westchester, New York. Samuel Bronfman, the 21-year-old heir to the multi-million dollar Bronfman business, stands up at his family's long dining table. He's enjoyed a luxuriously rich, candlelit meal with his father tonight, but it's now 11.30 p.m. and Samuel is keen to leave. He politely thanks the family's cook for the delicious dinner, bids his father goodnight, and walks through the dark, shadowed woodland estate to where his green BMW is parked. After driving for a few miles, Samuel arrives at his mother's sprawling estate in Purchase, just minutes before midnight. He's greeted by an eerie scene of darkness. No lights shine from the grand house up the driveway. And once he's unlocked the garage, he finds that that too is completely empty. But Samuel doesn't worry. His mother is currently away enjoying a cruise, and he's become used to spending idle summer days alone on her expansive grounds. So, after driving slowly into the garage, he stops his car, switches off the engine, and pushes open the door. But as Samuel reaches back in to grab the keys, he freezes. A sudden noise rustles just feet away, followed by a cacophony of footsteps that break the sinister silence around him. This is a stick-up! A rough voice shouts. Samuel sees the darkness broken by the horrifying shadow of a 38 caliber pistol and a wide, blank face obscured by a dark ski mask. Before he has a chance to react, a man's gnarled hands are gripping against his head and tightly wrapping a blindfold around his eyes. Samuel's vision goes black, and his head drips with beads of sweat as the steel barrel of a gun digs into his ribs. His shaking wrists are tightly bound with handcuffs. Samuel's led out of the garage and forced to stumble along the rugged woodland of his mother's estate. After a few minutes of walking, he feels the grass beneath his shoes turn into tarmac and hears the gentle purr of traffic as it races along the Hutchinson River Parkway. There is no doubt about it. Samuel Bronfman is being abducted and will soon be far away from the safety of his mother's house. When they approach the main road, the attacker opens the door of an idling car and pushes Samuel in. Another man is waiting in the driver's seat. Inside, it feels large and spacious. Unbeknown to Samuel, it's a limousine, and the ride would almost be luxurious if it weren't for the terrifying circumstances he was in. After about an hour of driving, the limousine pulls up next to a roadside payphone. The abductors lift Samuel's blindfold just a fraction, loosen his handcuffs, and allow him to make one call. Swaying with sickness, fear, and disorientation, Samuel dials the familiar number of his father's house in Westchester. With a single click, the telephone connects, and at 1.45 a.m., Samuel Bronfman utters the six words to his family's butler that will change his life forever. Call my father. I've been kidnapped. The abduction of the wealthy Samuel Bronfman achieves nationwide attention all throughout America, and the FBI determined to find and safely return the heir to the fortune. 
but Samuel's kidnapping is just the beginning of a bizarre, scandalous saga for one of America's richest families. In a shocking twist of fate, the true story will be obscured from the public for 45 years until a dying lawyer confesses a shameful secret on his deathbed. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Samuel Bronfman, the victim of one of America's most infamous abductions. It's about the privileged life of the wealthy Bronfman family, the shocking crime that captivated the entire nation for nine long days. And a pair of unlikely suspects who outwitted the FBI. It's about a bizarre court trial that tarnished the name of an admired and respected family. The story of a clandestine affair that fooled both the judge and jury. And the deathbed confession from one of America's top lawyers, whose lies allowed two criminals to escape justice for their crime. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. New York City, 1975. 21-year-old Samuel Bronfman is the eldest son and direct heir to the business titan Edgar Bronfman. As owner of the wildly successful and lucrative distillery, the Seagram Company, Edgar Bronfman has an estimated fortune of around $750 million. It makes him one of the wealthiest men in all of America, and his eldest son, who's set to inherit these millions, an internationally famous heir. The Bronfman's wealth is widely envied both at home and abroad. They boast multiple estates in the most exclusive pockets of New York, travel predominantly by private plane, and mix with America's social elite, from Broadway royalty to future politicians. But although Samuel Bronfman is guaranteed to receive a multi-million dollar inheritance, money is not a topic he brags about. He's considered by friends and family to be a very normal, even-tempered and down-to-earth individual. Samuel has recently graduated from his father's alma mater, Williams College, where he was a talented and competitive sports player. At a lanky six foot three with a naturally athletic build, he excelled on his college tennis and basketball teams. Although his father is keen to train him into running the family business, it's sport that dominates Samuel's young mind. He prepares for his new position at Sports Illustrated magazine, which he's due to begin in September. With an admirable college degree, respectable job lined up, 
and imminent engagement to his long-term girlfriend, Melanie Mann, Samuel's life seems to be on track for success. But that's all set to change one fateful night in August 1975. As the wealthy Samuel Bromfman is forcefully dragged away from his mother's mansion and taken prisoner in a grotty, rundown Brooklyn apartment, his privileged plans instantly fall apart. For the Bronfman family, the hunt for their beloved son is just the beginning of an unforeseen downfall. Sunday, August 10th, 1975. Two days have passed since Samuel Bronfman was taken from his mother's garage and instructed to make the chilling telephone call to his father's butler. Since then, the lives of the Bronfman family have descended into a panic-stricken chaos. Edgar Bronfman's luxurious, isolated Westchester estate has transformed into a hive of buzzing reporters. Journalists, cameramen, and nosy spectators have pitched tents all along the extensive driveway, desperate to taste just a morsel of the intriguing action. As a result, several members of the Bronfman family have moved to their Manhattan apartment on Park Avenue. But even here, the Bronfmans are denied any privacy as their Manhattan house grows into a de facto FBI headquarters. Their rooms crawl with top federal agents and officers, all of whom are desperately trying to track down Samuel. So far though, all they've discovered is his abandoned green BMW parked in his mother's estate, with its keys still in the ignition. No one knows where Samuel might be or what fate he may have met. The FBI suspect that due to his family's extensive wealth, the motive of the kidnap is purely monetary. They believe it's likely that the abductors will hold Samuel until Edgar Bronfman pays up the ransom money. However, they cannot guarantee Samuel's safety while in captivity. So nervously, Edgar Bronfman, his youngest two sons, daughter and ex-wife, spend sleepless hours awaiting any news from the abductors or some small sign that Samuel is still alive. Sometime during Sunday, the 10th of August, a knock at the door brings the Bronfmans a surprising scrap of news. Encased in a special delivery envelope, the mailman hands over a letter which is unmistakably a ransom note. Within the letter, Samuel's kidnappers make several chilling demands. Firstly, they order Edgar Bronfman to pay them an unbelievable total of $4.6 million for the release of his son. Within days, this total is reduced to $2.3 million, presumably to make their chances of receiving the ransom more realistic. They specify that the money must be delivered in cash, and no more than half of the bills can be in an uncirculated condition. The note then assures the Bronfmans that Samuel is still alive and well, although he may not be for long. They warn that he's surviving on limited supplies of food and water, and a slow response to their requests will lead to a tragic end for the victim. But it's not only Samuel's life that's threatened in the ransom note. Edgar Bronfman himself is promised a brutal capture and certain death if he fails to comply with all of their demands. He must demonstrate his cooperation in their scheme by publishing a cryptic ad in a New York newspaper, using a specific message and alias. Finally, 
Edgar is instructed to travel to JFK Airport with the cash on Wednesday the 13th of August. Once there, he must lock himself in a payphone booth. Edgar can expect to hear from one of the abductors and will be given further directions to discreetly hand over the ransom money from there. At the end of the ransom letter is a mysterious signature that reads simply, The Raven. With no financial restraints and desperate to free his eldest son, Edgar Bronfman quickly agrees to the conditions of the note. Following the Raven's orders, he shows his compliance by publishing a personal ad in a New York newspaper. It reads, Jack, please come home. Your mother is very anxious. We will be happier in the future. Fred Dullard. Next, Edgar Bronfman enlists top FBI agents to follow him to Kennedy Airport and watch his every move as he prepares to negotiate with his son's abductors. Wednesday, August 13th. It's 8.10 p.m. and Edgar Bronfman is standing inside a phone booth at JFK International Airport. He's nervously waiting to hear from his son's anonymous abductors. Eventually, he does. Over the next four hours, Edgar tirelessly takes call after call from different phone booths in and around the airport. The abductors seem to be toying with him. They force him to run between separate phone booths so that the calls can't be traced and continually end the conversation after just a handful of unhelpful, frustrating seconds. And despite Edgar's best efforts, the abductors never show. Heaving garbage bags full of cash, Edgar Bronfman retreats to his luxurious Park Avenue apartment without his eldest son. In the days that follow, Samuel Bronfman's captors continue the torment. They send the Bronfman family audio recordings of Samuel pleading for his life and begging his father to save him. FBI agents identify that one of the tapes was wiped twice and re-recorded before being sent to the Bronfmans. They fear that this action signifies Samuel's swift deterioration. Perhaps, they theorize, he was too injured and weak to speak the lines his captors wanted on the first two attempts. And if he's in too bad a condition to even speak coherently, what other horrors is he currently being exposed to? Frustratingly for the Bronfmans, the investigation remains unsuccessful, despite the fact that the FBI thoroughly analyzes every tape, letter, phone call, and suspicious correspondence. America's wealthiest family is left craving something their millions cannot buy, the return of Edgar's eldest son. For the next three days, Samuel's captors continue to taunt the Bronfman family, sending tape after tape of the 21-year-old heir in pain. Until finally, they pause their cruel correspondence and Edgar receives a phone call. The abductors are now ready to attempt another exchange, and they instruct Edgar to drive out to Queens where they'll be waiting. But Edgar Bronfman is prepared this time. With the NYPD and FBI agents following his every move, he may just have a chance to save his son. Saturday, August 16th, 3 a.m. Edgar Bronfman shuffles nervously in the front seat of his car. 
His sweaty hands tightly grip numerous bags containing $2.3 million in cash. Every few seconds, he casts anxious looks around, expecting to see figures emerging from the shadows that surround him. Tonight, following the directions of a recent ransom call, Edgar has parked his car in an undisclosed location in Queens to hand over the money. He hopes that this time, the captors will hold up their end of the bargain and finally bring his son to this abandoned meeting place. Fortunately, Edgar Bronfman is not alone. Lurking in the shadowy background behind him is an army of FBI agents. Dressed in all black, they wait silently on motorcycles, in camouflaged taxis, heavy-duty cargo vans, and a few even hover above the thick tree line in helicopters. Everyone is poised in preparation to target the mysterious abductors if and when they appear. Then, a few hours before dawn, the dark, muddy path is suddenly illuminated by the blinding beam of a car's headlights. A long, battered, rust-colored Oldsmobile chokes to a stop just feet away from Edgar Bronfman's own car, and a figure emerges. He's a man of medium build wearing black gloves and a stocking mask over his wide face. He climbs into Edgar's car and orders him to drive slowly through the neighborhood while he counts the bags of cash. After a few minutes, the man is satisfied that Edgar Bronfman has provided the correct amount of money in the desired condition. He climbs out of Edgar's passenger seat quickly and begins loading the Oldsmobile with a stacks of ransom money. Edgar Bronfman waits in his car, watching the man's every move. But although the doors of the Oldsmobile are flung open, there's still no sign of Samuel. It looks as though the captors have once again failed to deliver their end of the deal. The FBI agents maintain their positions. Their target is standing in plain sight. All they need to do is announce their presence and he'll be caught red-handed. But all too soon, the man finishes emptying his bags of ransom money and with a splutter, his car roars into life. The mysterious abductor speeds off into the thick darkness of the night and is instantly lost from view. Somehow, over 100 FBI agents have let the criminal disappear. Edgar Bronfman is $2.3 million poorer and still without his son. However, although the stranger has miraculously escaped for now, he has made one grave error. He foolishly drove in his own car to collect the cash and police can all too easily trace his plates. FBI agents swiftly link the plate 969KXJ to a first-floor apartment in the Flatbush section of Brooklyn. It's registered to a Mr. Mel Patrick Lynch, a 37-year-old fireman who emigrated to New York from a rural village in Ireland. Lynch has no prior criminal record and seems unlikely to be the architect of the kidnapping. His neighbors fondly give him the nickname Fireman Lynch, and regard him as shy, reserved, and always polite. But despite this squeaky clean record, his Oldsmobile is the only lead the police currently have. 
So they enter the Brooklyn neighborhood and wait inconspicuously outside of his address. While a handful of agents stand on the sidewalk next to Lynch's apartment, monitoring any movements and preparing to approach, two others observe from an idling car just a few blocks away. Unbeknown to them, they've parked right outside the house of Lynch's close friend, 53-year-old Dominic Byrne. Just like Lynch, Byrne's criminal record is non-existent, and he too is an Irish immigrant. Byrne is exceedingly well-liked within his Brooklyn community. His neighbors look forward to hearing his cheery top of the mornings each time they see him out. He attends mass every Sunday with his wife and has raised a respectful family. Interestingly, Byrne spends his days working as a limousine driver, the same type of car Samuel was abducted in. To investigators' surprise, Byrne breaks at the mere sight of FBI agents. As soon as he spots the men waiting outside of his house, he panics and confesses his guilt. He shamefully admits that he has played a role in the kidnapping of Samuel Bronfman, but repeatedly stresses that he was forced to do so by his demanding neighbor, Mel Patrick Lynch. Byrne swiftly warns police and agents about Lynch, painting him as an angry, violent man who's prone to dangerous fits of rage. He explains that it would be reckless for them to burst in unannounced to Lynch's apartment, and instead offers to phone his neighbor himself. Byrne assures the agents that if he calls Lynch and asks to come over, his neighbor won't suspect anything out of the ordinary. This element of surprise will give the FBI the upper hand. However, Byrne is not as trustworthy as the police hope. As soon as he hears Lynch's voice on the other end of the phone, he spills their situation. It's all over, Mel. They're coming over. It's now a race against time. FBI agents speed along the two short blocks from Burns' house to Lynch's first floor apartment on East 19th Street. They burst through the front door and into a smelly, grotty living room. There, on the moth-eating couch, sits two figures. One is a large, calm stranger they presume to be Lynch, and the other, a tall, skinny man whom they know to be Samuel Bronfman. Samuel sits slumped on the couch, one of his wrists bound feebly by a thin cord, and his eyes covered by a blindfold that's sticky with blood, flesh, and his own facial hairs. His t-shirt is shabby and dirty, and his sneakers are slipped roughly on. But apart from his disheveled appearance, obvious weight loss, and slight disorientation, Samuel appears physically unharmed. FBI agents gently unwind the cord around his wrist, lift the blindfold, and lead him safely home. Finally, after nine days as a prisoner of Lynch and Byrne, Samuel Bronfman returns to his comfortable life of luxury. Lynch and Byrne are brought in for questioning at FBI headquarters in New York, where they have no choice but to confess their guilt. They've been caught red-handed in the kidnapping of Samuel Bronfman, as well as in the extortion of $2.3 million from his father. The ransom money is found stowed beneath a single bed in an unoccupied apartment. But although Lynch and Byrne will give a detailed confession to the police, their original version of events will only ever be heard once. Almost as soon as the two men incriminate themselves with their testimony, 
they'll backtrack and deny all charges. It will take over 45 years for the story to be heard again. In a four-page signed confession, Dominic Byrne tells the truth about Samuel Bronfman's abduction. He details how, in 1973, Lynch approached him with the idea and promised they would receive a significant ransom payoff without anyone getting hurt. Perhaps taking inspiration from the recent abductions of John Paul Getty III in 1973 and Patty Hearst in 1974, the friends spent years devising a sinister plan to target one of America's richest heirs. Byrne mentions that they visited the house of Samuel Bronfman's mother somewhere between 30 and 40 times before the abduction. It's likely that they never met Samuel on these visits. Their first encounter with him would have been on the night of August 8, 1975. This signed confession from Byrne and the fact that the police caught Lynch red-handed with the victim should mean that the mystery is solved. The abductors have been found and the prisoner safely released. However, it's not as easy as that. At their bail hearing in September 1975, Lynch and Byrne gained separate legal representation. Under the instruction of his lawyer, Lynch quickly retracts the confession. The pair now plead innocent to the charges put against them and tell the intriguing story that Samuel Bronfman masterminded his own abduction. And so the trial that follows is a bizarre whirlwind of illicit affairs, double crossings, and family betrayal. Based on the story spun by Lynch, Samuel might not be as innocent as he initially seemed. October, 1976, White Plains, New York. As the trial of Samuel Bromfman's abduction commences, the New York courthouse buzzes with reporters, cameramen, and spectators. Everyone is desperate to get a look at the infamous kidnappers and hear the story of his sudden capture. Inside the courtroom, Lynch is the first to take the stand. Although described as shy by all who knew him, he exudes confidence today. Lynch looks perfectly at home recounting his story in front of a judge, jurors, and several journalists. He opens with a bold and almost unbelievable accusation. He claims that he and Samuel Bronfman are not strangers. They are in fact lovers. From the moment Lynch utters these damning words, he holds his audience in a mesmerized trance. They hungrily hang off every word he speaks, desperate to find out more about this forbidden, scandalous affair. Lynch informs the jury that he and Samuel Bronfman met at a gay bar in 1974 and began a clandestine love affair. Lynch would regularly travel to Samuel's home and purchase, where the two had intimate nights of secret sex and late-night conversations. During one of these evenings, Samuel broached the idea of extorting money from his father. He suggested staging his own kidnap with the help of Lynch who would have presumably been tempted by the large amount of ransom money they could split between the two of them. According to Lynch's words under oath, he was unwillingly forced into the scheme by blackmail. Samuel threatened to tell Lynch's bosses at the fire department of his homosexuality if he didn't go along with the plan. The story is shocking to everyone who hears it. Suddenly, America's richest heir may not be a victim they should pity 
but a criminal mastermind they should punish. Over four thrilling days, Lynch convinces the jury that his bizarre story is absolutely true. He's unshakable on the witness stand and remembers every minuscule detail of his words. When asked by the prosecuting lawyer if anyone else joined their table when he first met Bronfman, Lynch replied, No, sir, we were at the bar. However, his most convincing argument comes when he describes the state Samuel was found in when the FBI stormed his Brooklyn apartment. According to Lynch, Samuel didn't look like a victim at all. His right hand was bound with a flimsy cord that they'd hastily pulled from the blinds, but his left hand was entirely free. The cloth covering Samuel's eyes was simply a discarded scrap of material they'd found on the floor at the very last moment. This lack of preparation was, of course, according to Lynch, due to the fact that Samuel wasn't a real prisoner at all. Lynch says that Samuel did not endure days locked in a grimy apartment with two dangerous strangers. In reality, he enjoyed a honeymoon period with his lover, away from the judgment of his father. On examining the cord taken from Samuel's hands, jurors find that it immediately falls apart. If the prisoner had really wanted to, he'd have been able to break free from this pathetic restraint within seconds. Next to speak is Dominic Byrne's lawyer, Peter de Blasio. De Blasio is one of America's best trial lawyers. As a charismatic, passionate public speaker, he's gained a reputation as almost unbeatable in court. But today, as de Blasio prepares to defend his client, he makes a decision that will haunt him until months before his death. De Blasio initially plans on depicting Lynch as the mastermind to the entire operation and painting his client, Byrne, as a weak, innocent accomplice who was forced to participate. However, after witnessing Lynch's epic performance on the stand, de Blasio changes his stance. He supports Lynch's story. De Blasio narrates how Samuel Bronfman is a gay man who, struggling to cope with the pressures his father placed upon him, invented a false kidnapping scheme. The plot was allegedly designed to grant Samuel financial freedom and independence from an overbearing family he failed to fit in with. De Blasio takes the story even further than Lynch and impresses the jury with an incriminating statement about Samuel. He concludes that there was no kidnapping and demands that instead of hunting Lynch and Byrne, the FBI should have been checking Samuel Bronfman. Over the next eight weeks as the trial builds momentum with its bizarre twists and turns, de Blasio, Lynch, and the defense team convince the jury of Samuel Bronfman's guilt. Lynch's lawyer, Walter Higgins, presents an affidavit from a family friend who reveals that Samuel approached him in 1974 with a similar kidnap and extortion plan. Apparently, Samuel wanted to steal millions of dollars from his father in order to open a gay bar. He knew that his father would never lend him that money for such a frivolous purpose, so became obsessed with the idea of illegally extorting it. Conveniently though, Higgins glazes over the unreliability of this affidavit, failing to mention that its writer is currently serving a lengthy jail sentence for forgery. Next, the defense team uses several of Samuel's ransom tapes to convince the jury that the young Bronfman was acting the part of a prisoner. 
playing the tape that was erased twice before being sent, the lawyer explains that it was re-recorded on Samuel's own demand. His voice can be heard in the background calmly telling his captors that he'll say the lines again. He wanted to make his speech as a captive sound more convincing before releasing it to his father. Finally, de Blasio challenges Samuel Bronfman's own testimony. Samuel swears under oath that he was always guarded by either Lynch or Byrne, meaning that he had no way of even attempting to escape. However, records shown in court reveal that both Lynch and Byrne regularly left the apartment and were absent for the entire day of August 15th. If Samuel Bronfman really was a prisoner, why did he not attempt to escape during these periods of freedom? The story told by Lynch and Peter de Blasio is enough to sway jurors. On December 10th, 1975, Lynch and Byrne are acquitted of the charge of kidnapping and instead found guilty of the smaller crime of extorting money from Edgar Bronfman. Lynch receives four to 12 years in prison while Byrne is sentenced to three to nine with the opportunity of parole. As for Samuel Bronfman, it's clear that the judge and jury believe him to be a guilty man. However, there isn't enough evidence to convict him of masterminding his own kidnap. Following the verdict, Samuel is supported vehemently by his close friends and family, and Edgar Bronfman announces to reporters that he has nothing but love, trust, and affection for his son. Samuel himself is appalled at the ruling and issues a press release from his father's Fifth Avenue apartment. He laments. It's a pretty sad system when a guy gets kidnapped. The kidnappers are caught red-handed and they get off. The only thing you can do is laugh about it and put it behind you. But in reality, Samuel Bronfman will never be able to put the events of the trial behind him. Although he'll retreat from media attention into a quiet family life, certain people will always see him as untrustworthy. Samuel Bronfman's life is forever haunted by the events of August 8, 1975. Just 10 years after his abduction, his father overlooks him as the rightful heir to the Seagram Company. Instead of following tradition and passing his multi-million dollar fortune onto his eldest son, Edgar Bronfman names Samuel's younger brother as the new owner of the company. This decision causes speculation. Samuel is by all means the obvious choice. He has a college degree, business training, and experience in working for his father, unlike his brother. Within years, the younger Bronfman sells off the corporations in exchange for the entertainment industry, causing the collapse of the Seagram company. But why did Edgar Bronfman, a sensible businessman and logical decision maker, choose to place his billion dollar life's work in the hands of Samuel's younger brother? It's possible that he wasn't as convinced by Samuel's story of the kidnap as he initially claimed. Perhaps Edgar believed Lynch's version of events wherein Samuel masterminded his own abduction to extort millions of dollars for himself. Life is kinder to Mel Patrick Lynch and Dominic Byrne. They both serve extremely short sentences in prison. Byrne is released on parole after five years, and Lynch joins him just 12 months later. It's not clear how the two men spend the rest of their lives after jail, but seeing as their names don't receive any further media attention, 
we can presume that they continue the quiet existences they enjoyed before the trial of 1976. However, one question about the two men still remains. Why, with no other existing criminal tendencies, did they ever get involved in the kidnap of Samuel Bronfman? While Lynch and Burns seem to be able to put the abduction and trial behind them, there's one man from the defense team who's tormented by his actions for the rest of his life. In 2020, 45 years after Samuel's abduction, Peter de Blasio will admit on his deathbed what really happened in the court case that shocked the nation. It's now July 2020, and 91-year-old Peter de Blasio is dying. His heart is weakening by the day, and he's well aware that he has only months left to live. His deteriorating condition is perhaps why he decides to publish a memoir of his career, titled Let Justice Be Done. But the autobiography isn't just about the impressive achievements of a top trial lawyer. It also contains a dark secret that de Blasio has never revealed. He writes, About Sam, I want it to be clear to all who may have ever read these pages that Samuel Bronfman was not a part of the kidnapping. Neither he nor Lynch were gay as far as anyone ever knew, and certainly they were not lovers. Lynch's story was a lie, and de Blasio knew this from day one. He himself had read Burns' incriminating confession and was well aware he was defending a criminal who should serve the lengthy sentence for kidnapping. But why did de Blasio lie? Was it out of desperation to uphold his undefeated reputation? Or was there another factor that caused him to jeopardize Samuel Bronfman's reputation? It's unlikely that we'll ever discover the reason behind de Blasio's dishonesty, as he doesn't explain his actions in his memoirs and dies five months later in December of 2020. Although his book receives only limited attention, the groundbreaking confession eventually reaches Samuel Bronfman. However, by now 68 years old and with grown-up children who have never been told about their father's kidnap, Samuel is reluctant to relive the memories of 1975. In a letter to the New York Times about de Blasio's memoirs, he simply writes, I was really kidnapped in 1975, and his and Lynch's defense was a fraud. I'm glad he finally acknowledged this fact. And so, 45 years after he was framed as a criminal mastermind and traitor to his wealthy family, Samuel Bronfman is finally declared an honest man. But de Blasio's memoirs may be a little too late. With both of Samuel's captors, and even his own father, now dead, the truthful confession is bittersweet. There is no one left to acknowledge his innocence. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Jesse Aylward, a Massachusetts man with a secret that he carried with him most of his adult life. One that could blow the lid off a decades-old homicide. The town of Pembroke hadn't seen a homicide in over 10 years prior to 1984. 
when one of their most loved local residents was found brutally murdered in her own home. And maybe, after 35 years, Aylward's deathbed confession could give her family the answers they've been after for over three decades. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor Jane O. Sound designed by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 